I'd like to welcome director Richie Smith and producer Alan Maloney. Uh, Richie, let's start with you. Um, how, did you how did you come across this story in the first place? Um, about seven years ago, I was reading a book called Guns for Hire, which is kind of the history of the mer mercenary soldier. Uh, starts with the Pinkertons in Glasgow going to America and the, then being hired to police the railroads and goes right through to modern day Afghanistan and Yemen. And right in the middle of this, um, this book, there was just this one page about these Irish soldiers, a small group of Irish soldiers who, who came up against these formidable force of mercs and sort of kicked their arse. And, uh, the, uh, and I was, I'd never heard of it, you know, and being Irish and stuff, I'm pretty much thinking, you know, it's a small you know, island, you think you pretty much know everything about the history. And I'd never heard of it, so I started to dig into it. And once I started to dig into it, all this stuff just started coming out. And then I found Declan's book, The Siege of Jadaville, and, and an option, and that's where, that's where the whole thing started. And in terms of research, going to primary sources, uh, historical sources, it, to the extent that people ask, how much is this rooted in truth, how accurate it is, what, what, what research did you do that ended up in the film? I mean, this, the, the, you know, the journey of writing the script became a bit like a documentary in itself because we were interviewing soldiers and historians and um, Professor Michael Kennedy and Susan Williams who wrote Who Killed, Dam who Killed Hammerskill. Um, there was just a constant research going on all the time and then at a certain point, Declan's book really only had the sort of beats, like historic beats of the battle and whatnot. Um, but Leo Quinlan, who's the son of Pat Quinlan, called and wanted to help. And so he came on board and sort of that helped us with the central character a little bit because that really wasn't in the book, you know. And in terms of, from research, you can get, as you say, beats and you can get plot and story. But in fleshing out characters, how did you come up with the ensemble that, that we saw? And again, how much are they based on, uh, if we were to say, are they like the real people? Uh, yeah, I mean, very much so. I mean, for example, Prendergast really was a kind of an action hero type guy who would be shooting back when everybody else would be on the ground and he'd yeah. be going, get up and shoot, you know? Um, but He was the second in command. Yeah, he was Sarge, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he really was that kind of a guy. So it was fun for Jason to play that, I think. Um, um, but a lot of the characters are actually an amalgamation of different men because, you, you know, there's so many people and so many stories of what happened and they can't all be in there. So it was really just when, you know, when we were developing it, the script, we started to you know, hone two and three characters into one. Because it's just, there's quite a lot of people in the movie as it is. And one of the other points that Richie came across with Leo, actually, was the... Leo Quinlan. Leo yeah. Quinlan, Pat Quinlan, some was the, um, the actual transcription of the radio logs. So at a certain point in the movie, and he says, you know, yeah. keep a log of this. And he kept a copy of those radio logs. Mm. Um, and they were kept from the military, so they don't they didn't they don't exist in the military archives. But um, Richie managed to get a co that copy of those original logs, which were all written in Irish. In Irish, yeah. Um, and so the the facts of the communication back and forward with Conor Cruz O'Brien came from from those those logs. logs. So he had the log basically. He realised you know Quinlan was a great strategist and tactician. And he figured out something was wrong because he was calling for help. He realized he was caught behind enemy lines. In other words, an enemy line had been established, which was the bridge. And the answers he was getting back weren't making sense. So he said, make a log. And what happened was at the end, when they were under house arrest, he gave the log, which was about 18 pages, to a journalist and said, this is a love letter. Can you get it to my wife in Athlone? And the guy said, of course. And the army intercepted the letter and destroyed it. 
but he had made a second copy, which the army have never seen, and they know we have it. Uh, which is interesting, <laughs> yeah. and they were quite nervous about the movie. So and I was a red dot on your head. And yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So until, until they give the medal, <laughs> yeah. we're not around at the moment. Is, is there any dissent as to what happened, or would, would anyone watch this film and say that's not how it was? If there is, I've been very quiet about it. Yeah. I, I mean, anyone in Ireland who's seen the movie is, I think, there's a, a, a general sense of one kind of anger and two. Um, uh, just a, a huge kind of wave of support for the men and for what they did and a realisation that the government had behaved the way they have yeah. done, obviously. And, you know, rather brilliantly, when I was telling you this earlier, when we screened the movie, in, we screened it in Galway in June, and um, the day of the screening, the Minister for Defence called Leo, Pat's son, to tell him, that the government were going to give them a unit citation, which is the first time it's ever happened in the history of the state, for bravery, which, you know, clearly not coincidental. And then <laughs> they, and then we screened the movie in Dublin about two weeks ago, and they managed to schedule the presentation of the unit citation for three days before <laughs> the screening of the film. So they've got themselves off the hook at every turn. It's one thing to have a... Uh, an amazing unknown story, but it's quite another to distill it into a compelling film. Can you take, take us through the challenges of, of, of doing that once you had the story, how you made a good piece of cinema from Well, I mean, there have been two documentaries already, and so the idea was to make a movie, you know? Um, so it was really about, I mean, it was hard because you needed to, when if you're telling a true story, especially if it's untold under some certain stuff that comes out that is a revelation, you, you can't lose the audience at any point. You know, you can't sort of, they can't lose belief in what you're telling them. You need that honesty. So it was quite hard to stick, to find a movie in the traditional sense through that path. You know, with all this material and all these various stories and stuff and facts. But, so it was just really about working the script you know, hard, and we were working it up until the, while we were shooting it, we were working it, you know. And were there, were there significant omissions or alterations to the historical record that you had to make for the good of the drama? Mm, no, I mean, all the, all the geopolitical stuff is very accurate and very, very heavily researched. I'd say where the license is, um, like the, the bullets at the end was just an idea I came up with. I was like, what else can we fucking do here? You know? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And I suppose it's the Irish in me, but I says, right, make, make bombs with nails in them. So, uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, but, the, um, uh, but the battle itself was more like, um, it was all skirmishes. You know? And so that's kind of, it's not very cinematic. And it's very difficult for an audience to follow that because it's just you know, guys jumping out of everywhere. And, so we decided to just kind of make it more of a Zulu type idea. Yeah. So then we had a, we could it be more cinematic, and also we had a geography. So because I think if the audience get lost, I, I could be wrong because you're the audience, but if they get lost in terms of the geography, it just turns into generic action, mm. and then you've kind of lost the point. Um, the, I mean, just to qualify that, we replicated the original battleground, if you like, and and the where they where they lived in the military. Um, installation and the battles did come from those sides mm -hmm. in various ways so it just didn't happen quite as neatly <laughs> neatly yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and in terms of where you shot and the challenges of shooting there and indeed the challenges of 
creating so many compelling battle scenes that are all slightly different. Can you take us through the shoot? Um, I mean, the key, I think, to, to action is for the action to always be escalating. Yeah. You know? So every battle, you know, the first battle is a sort of a surprise attack with guns and a few men, and then the next one we introduce mortars, uh, you know, and so forth. Then the Fuga shows up, then the head, you know, so we were constantly trying to escalate the action. So it never plateaued. So we, we tried to shoot as much as we could in sequence um, because, you know, we were blowing up bits as we were going, and it was all bricks and mortar. The challenge probably became like stuff like, would say, Guillaume. We had, you know, because we, I think we, we, we made choices which is like, let's get great actors like Mark and Guillaume and Danny, and, but we had to shoot them out in a block. So Guillaume is all over the whole battle, but he came in for six days in the middle. And that he's was, the, the lead mercenary. He's the lead mercenary, yeah. Falk, yeah. So that was challenging because, you know, we had to see the, the, the compound in, in perfect condition, a bit messed up, and then destroyed all in his scenes. So that was quite challenging um, to plan out. So a lot of planning went into, and choreography went into the battles. And we built the, you know, obviously we built all of those buildings from the ground up, um, and they're proper buildings. And so the, they were wired for explosives from the outset. So they, so there was a, re, there was a, a, a very kind of well-defined grid and system yeah. Um, so we, we had to blow things up in particular order. And, you know, and also um, tell people, no, don't ever press that button. Yeah, 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 yeah. There was a lot of that. Yeah. And I mean, at one point, I mean, like two months, be nearly two months before, when they were first building it, I'd have to go around with a marker and go, right, a bullet hit there, a bullet hit there, wood in the wood, breaks the glass. And then somebody else come along a week later and drills a hole. And then another guy comes along and puts explosives in. And then another guy comes along and plasters it all back up. I'm yeah. sure, I'm yeah, sure that's the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of mad, the process. Yeah. So, so the battle fun. scenes, which look like chaos, are actually, in their inception, the exact opposite. They're oh, very, yeah, oh, yeah, they have to be, yeah. And did you have an approach? Because we've, you know, in cinema and on television, there's been some staggering battle scenes over the last couple of decades. Uh, you, did you always want to be close up with the soldiers? What, what just was wanted the, what it was to feel real. I just wanted it to feel very real and for, for, for you to be there with them and feel it because these were innocent guys and they were, they were as they, we call them, virgin soldiers. So I wanted um, people to feel what it was like to be in the middle of that yeah. as much as possible. So we chose to shoot a lot with standard lenses and slightly, slightly wide lenses um, for that reason. So we always had to get in with the action rather than stepping back. Yeah. Uh, in, in terms of casting your, your A company and indeed making them male, when you're trying to create soldiers that, who look convincing as, as people who would do anything for their, for their brothers, I suppose, do you have to put them through a boot camp? Do you cast them together? I wonder what's the process, because they just felt like pals in the First World War sense. You know? Yeah, I mean, so I feel like I'm doing all the talking here. Keep going. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, yeah, what, 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 we, what we did was um, we created the boot camp to train them to be soldiers. Um, we also brought all the extras in to train as well, so we had 80 extras a day with this them. This in South Africa? In South Africa, yeah. yeah. And the boot camp was set up beside the compound. So we were all working in the same environment. So you'd show up on set at half four in the morning, and it'd just be all these guys getting drilled and marched up the set and stuff. But, and we held... Jamie and Jason back because they were senior officers, right. and and they trained separately, um, and then so so the guys that our core guy that we were following they became like they really did become like a band of brothers um, over those few weeks, and then Jamie and Jason had to come in and take command of the boot camp and actually run the boot camp. So that gave them the dynamic that they would have on the on the 
the battlefield. The, the whole period that we shot all of Mark Strong's section. They were training. The, the, which was a few weeks. Then the, the rest of them were actually boot camping. Yeah. Tell me, um, perhaps one for you, Alan, what does it mean to you as, as filmmakers having, uh, working with Netflix? Is it substantially different to working with any other distributor broadcaster you work with? Is, is the model different from your point of view? It is different and it is extraordinary. And from our point of view, it was kind of like a dream. Um, I mean, without getting into too much of the detail, but that we were on that independent film slog where you go to your market and you do your pre-sales. And, and we went to Berlin um, and we did that sort of insane amount of meetings where you meet buyers from everywhere. And we were on day two and we had not, there were offers, but that we had not yet closed any of the territories. And we got word that a lady called Sarah Bowen from Netflix had read the script and really liked it. And so we met with Sarah and Sarah said, can you wait 24 hours? And it was like Saturday or something and the market finished on Sunday. And I said, look, if we don't close a deal by Sunday, then the market's over and then we're into a whole other world of pain. So we, so we, we gave them, I think they got like an exclusive period or something of 12 or 18 hours or something. And then everybody in Los Angeles read the script. And then they came back and said, right, we want to do this. And we spent all night negotiating. And then we closed it on Sunday morning at 6 o'clock or something. And by the following Friday, we were on planes to South Africa. And, really? Yeah. And it just, and, and they, were, they were extraordinary. They, um, like, there was just absolute full commitment, support, um, and, and yeah, they they stood back and let us make the film ourselves. They weren't there wasn't that you know on set presence that you can experience on occasion. And and there was a real I think respect for the filmmaking process. So, uh, you know, uh, we have nothing but praise for them. I mm. think. And and you know the, the the reality is that we're we're now I suppose <coughs> we're in that place where because you know, we're programmed in a way to go through the process of making a film and then releasing a film. And there's a thing that you, it's like bringing a baby out into the world and you kind of go with it. And we're in that place where we're doing that, but we don't have a theatrical release. We do, as it happens, they, they Netflix decided to release the film in Ireland theatrically. Um, and so it has had that, which has been extremely gratifying, I think, for us, obviously. Yeah. And, um, but we don't have that. So there's a little bit of a kind of emotional struggle that goes on because you're not getting to do that. But by the same token, we got just the most kind of brilliant uh, opportunity to make this film. And I, I, I don't, it would not be the film it is without them. No. Um, and, you know, for that, I think we're just very grateful. I think what's interesting about them as well um, is, you, can, you know, it's particularly in the independent market, you can make a movie, you can make a great movie, and no one gets to see it. Um, so, you know, we trade the sort of, from a director point of view, the ego of getting to see your film on the big screen or, or 80 million people get to see your movie. Yes, you 83 know. million subscribers. You know what I mean? It's yeah. sort of, you know, it's, it's kind hard. of extraordinary to think that next week there'll be 83 million people can watch the movie. And particularly pertinent, one might say, to the subject matter here, because this is the, the forgotten story, a story mm -hmm. that I certainly, and I doubt many people knew. One, before I open it to the floor, I was going to ask, I don't know if you have an answer, but how can a story like that, that is so politically charged, 
so fascinating. How can that have been? How come no one knew about it? I mean, it's parochial Ireland, you know, in, in, the, in the early 60s. You know, they came home, they, they didn't know why they were told they behaved as cowards, you know. Um, the, uh, so, you know, these young lads would have to go back to their homes and towns around Ireland and their dads were drinking in bars where it, you know, it was shame on the family. And, you know, it was all that kind of stuff and it just really buried itself so fast. And then once it was gone, it was gone. I think, you know, the Irish mm -hmm. government didn't want to embarrass themselves at the UN. Yeah. It was important for them to be accepted as a, as a grown-up state. It was a very new state, yeah. a very new country. But is the sense that not only did they, were they hung out to dry, as the film says, but actually were they sort of briefed against? How did the whole Jadaville Jackson come about? I think the spin was they'd been coward. They yeah. were, they'd been cowardly. Mm -hmm. And that was the message, that was the word that was sent out. That they had surrendered. You know, they and, um, and that, you know, they, they were able to, the propaganda of the, of the establishment at the time was able to, you know, um, spin that. Uh, line, that deceitful kind of line. And so, you know, that's not an unusual concept. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, Conor Cruz O'Brien, there was an article the BBC ran just on, like I think it was on um, September 19th or 20th, just after the incident, ran an article on, you know, taking him to the cleaners. But, you know, it was just one article and then it was gone yeah. into history, you know, so. Um, and he then wrote a book. Yeah. Exonerating. And about about how great so a job. He, he was in a good position to wipe the slate, yeah. yeah. Um, let's get some questions if we have some. I think we have microphones as well. So if you stick your hand up, we'll try and get you a microphone so we can hear what you want to ask. There's a gentleman up there. Hello, enjoyed the film. And two quick questions. The first one, was it in any way sort of an official Irish-South African co-production at all, or was South Africa basically a location? And the second one is a, just a historical question. Was uh, Dag Hammarskjöld's plane actually shot down by a fighter plane, which you seem to imply? <laughs> do you want to do the first one and I'll do the second? Um, uh, it was not an official Irish South African co-production, although we did uh, examine that. Uh, we, we did use the South African rebate. Um, and uh, through our co-producing partner in South Africa, out of Africa, um, if that answers the question. Um, there's a lot of speculation as to what happened to Dag Hammarskjöld's plane. At the time, it, immediately after it happened, it was put down to pilot error. And six months later, there was a second inquiry, and it was put down to pilot error again. And then it sort of went to sleep. Um, and then in 2014, it was reopened again by the Swedish government because there was evidence that um, a CIA listening post in Cyprus had picked up some kind of communication between a single pilot aircraft and a plane in the area where the plane went down, saying, I have, a, I have the plane, it's inside, I'm taking the shot. Uh, so that, that fed into a book that Susan Williams re uh, wrote, which is a really interesting book called Who Killed Hammerschild, um, which is sort of a forensic um, uh, breakdown of, what, of the plane and what happened. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the whole investigation, it, was, it, it still remains inconclusive. Thank you. Thank you. I found it a very compelling film. It really, really held tension and throughout, and you know, a strongly driven film. I'm just interested in Conor Cruz O'Brien, because I didn't know this sort of story of, of him at this stage. I mean, he became quite well known in this country on The Observer and all that sort of thing. And, and was there a problem in presenting him? I mean, or did you just stick to... What sort of basis did you go on? The sort of I mean, the stuff in the script that I found was, that's in the, in the movie is all in literature that's available. Um, 
the um, I think it's like what Alan said earlier on about the book to Katanga and back after the um, he was a great self promoter I think um, and intellectual um, he he tended to change sides a lot you know he was kind of a bit flippant <laughs> um, um, but I mean we certainly haven't come up against any resistance and his granddaughter came up to me at the premiere in Dublin which I didn't actually mention to you oh, no. and I was like oh fuck <laughs> and, and she went. Congratulations, I love the movie, well done. And I think within the family themselves, there's a little bit of the kind of a bit borne out from the Conor Cruz O'Brien sort of propaganda machine, you know? Um, I don't know if that answers your question. I, like seemingly everybody else in the whole world, didn't know about this incident. And you, seem, you alluded to Zulu earlier on, and you seem to have completed an unofficial but tremendous trilogy which includes the 1960 version of the Alamo Zulu, and now this. Um, I, w I wondered if you're aware of what... what great what company your, to be your, in. thank you very much. ...your position <laughs> in film history, and I wondered if you'd studied um, Zulu and either uh, any version and of the Alamo, but particularly the John Wayne one. I mean, I, I love both those movies, and grew, you know, I grew up on, on the John Wayne movie, you know, wanted to be Jim Bowie all my life, you know. Uh, so, I mean, that's in your becomes part of your DNA when you're a filmmaker. I think then you know. So, I didn't sit down and research the movies, but that I've seen them so many times, you know. Um, and I just used to love, I used to love them. And I mean, I did research quite a few war movies. And a funny revelation for me was because I love um, Spartacus so much. And I thought, I always remember as a kid, well, when the slaves bring out the, and they roll the fire and the fucking legions come together and you could see the different tactics. And I was like, wow, this is going to be, and I went to watch the movie. And I realized it's only like four minutes in the whole movie. And I was like, holy God. I mean, that's amazing that it stood in your brain that much. But you've just mentioned three films that were all in 70 millimeter. And here you're making something which is premiering on television. How do you feel about that conference? Well, we got, I mean, listen, you know, there was, you know, there, there was hard parts to working with Netflix. And one of them was there was a stipulation we needed to shoot in 4K caption. So that really narrowed our choices quite dramatically, you know. Unfortunately, uh, there isn't any more processing of film down in South Africa as there used to be. So that meant flying the rushes up to London every night. And that, that there's a very, there's a lot of unease about that. And, you know, um, I, I'm originally a commercial director and I DP my own work and stuff, so I'm kind of familiar with all that, you know, digital into film. And, and actually, um, and he's, I'm going to eat my words now or a little bit because he said I'd say this, but the Dragon, which we ended up using, actually turned out to be a great camera. <laughs> now, I dropped a Jeep on one of them just because I hated them so much during the movie and it was, it was a bit of a problem with that. But, uh, but actually, I don't know. I mean, when I said I just sat in tonight for a little bit to watch because I haven't seen it in cinema too many times, and you know I'm starting to not be able to see the difference anymore. You know, between film and digital. But you wouldn't want it, you would want to see it uh, projected in an IMAX theater. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to see it projected on the director. I mean, you know, that it, it was obviously very gratifying that Netflix decided to re to release the film in Ireland and and give it that airing. And every time, you know. The, the moments that we get to sit on, on a big screen are precious. Um, and it's just one of the sacrifices that I guess we've had to live with in that respect. Well, there is absolutely no trace of any sacrifice. I think you've, you've followed in a great tradition. You've made a great picture. Well, thank, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Are any of the lads still alive? And have they seen it, if there are? 
Have they been to see the film? Yeah. yeah, there's 40 men still alive, but 157 in total were there. Um, and they've, I think almost all of them saw it at the premiere in Dublin last week, and some in Galway, it was a smaller premiere. And um, actually, Alan told me something I thought was kind of, kind of lovely. Um, the other day, we just got a report in that in one of the cinemas, and I'm not sure what cinema it was. Uh, I don't know, it was somewhere in the Midlands. Somewhere in the Midlands. The, um, at the end of the cinema, there was one man, like a late 70s man, dressed in full military attire with medals in, in the audience on his own, and he got up and he stood up and he saluted the screen at the end, oh, yeah. which is cool, I thought. Mm. Yeah. So I think he was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, it was, but, you know, a lot of them were there. Um, Last week, and it was—I mean—it was profoundly moving. To be honest, it was a very uh, emotional. It was, yeah. Affair. There was a lot of people yeah. crying. Yeah, there. a lot of that. Yeah. Thank you very much to our panel. Congratulations on the film, thank you. and thank you. thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Sam.